Hello and welcome to episode 4 of the Anglo-Boer War with me, your host, Des Latham. In this episode, we'll learn about the first battle of Dundee, or what's known as Talana Hill, and Eilandslachter, a day later. Both appeared at first to be British victories, but appearances can be deceptive. A war had broken out, with Boer ultimatum that British forces pull back from the borders of their republics on the 10th of October 1899, which Queen Victoria rejected on the same day, and the conflict began. A week later, the Boers had moved into Natal and were threatening the Cape. They had already laid siege to Mafeking in the northwest and Kimberley in the northern Cape, with hardly a shot being fired. The British had mobilized reinforcements and some had reached the Cape and Natal. The initial brigades had arrived and were being moved towards the centre of South Africa and to Ladysmith north of Durban. 600,000 tonnes of shipping was needed by the British to move the goods, the horses, the men, equipment from across the sea to Africa. The two Boer republics, the Transvaal and Free State, were surrounded by British protectorates and the Portuguese East Africa and could be attacked from all sides, but in reality there was only one direction from the south. That's because of the railways, which were non-existent north of South Africa. There were four main tracks to South Africa's main ports and into the interior. Controlling these would dictate the future of the war. Our eyes shift to the Natal Republic and specifically the small town of Dundee, where the Natal commander, Simons, had sent his brigade of 4,000 men, thereby splitting his small force, which had been based in nearby Ladysmith. He'd acted before his officer commanding, General Wright, arrived as he rushed from England. Meanwhile, the Boer army of General Joubert was on the move towards Dundee from the north through the mountain pass near Folksris towards Dundee. Earlier, General Marula, according to the diary of Denise Reitz, had called his men around and said that Natal had been stolen from the Boer forefathers by the British and must now be recovered. The horsemen sang Die Volkslied as they crossed the Buffalo River near Newcastle to the north on their way to Dundee, which was now below them as they gained the Talana Heights. Reitz says, There was heavy rain, the night was black. Soon the frequent lightning revealed the steep side of a mountain rising like a wall before us, and word was passed to commence the ascent, for this was the mountain from the top of which it was said one could look down on the English encampments on the other side. It's now Friday, 20th of October, 1899, a day that began in misty fashion. Some of the British troops said later it felt like a morning in Scotland, a damp kind of dawn. Around the small town were arranged the 2nd Dublin Fusiliers, the 60th Rifles and the 1st Leicesters, in the khaki uniforms with brown paint over the bright buttons and sword handles. The officers still wore their swords, their knives, their revolvers and whistles, making them easy to spot for snipers. That habit was to change later. At 5.20am, the men had begun to fall out for the day, while the 18th Hussars Cavalry Unit were walking to the mess tent for breakfast. It was at that point that the pent-up energy of the past decade burst into the real shooting war. At first, the British troops couldn't believe that the men they saw two miles away on the top of Talane's Hill to the east were the Boers. There seemed to be riflemen gathering there, and three field guns, the Creosote 75mm cannon, joined the men. It was Lucas Mayer's commando, part of General Yebeer's army. Denis Reitz was part of this group. The British did nothing for 15 minutes, just staring at the Boers preparing to attack. They appeared frozen. Not one officer took initiative, as if they couldn't believe their eyes. Then the Boers fired their first artillery shell, which landed behind the mess tent. 
The second hit a tent peg but was a dud, and that led to confusion for two minutes before the British pulled themselves together. They dragged 18 field guns, three tour batteries, six batteries in all, into line and began to fire back. The 69th and 13th battery were not involved, however, they'd been sent to water their horses. While Commander Simons smoked a cigarette in his tent, complaining of the Boers' impudence, they'd started the shelling, he said, before breakfast. At around 6.40am, the Boer shelling slowed with little effect. Not much damage had been done. The Boers weren't very good at artillery initially. They got better. At this stage, fuses were mistimed and very few of the rounds exploded. However, that meant nothing to a poor 14-year-old boy bugler called Trumpeter Horn, whose head was blown off by a Maxim one-pounder. Otherwise, there were no other injuries. Simons needed to counterattack. He had a plan which he believed was simple and would succeed. First, he had to get the Boer commander to congregate his men on the ridge, but this had to take place before 2,000 more men on the Boer side were to join from behind Talana's hill. Simons was aware of the reinforcements, although he was ignorant about their exact location. First, he viewed the Boers' position through his field glasses from the British tent position in the town, which foreshortened what he saw like a modern camera lens. He thought he saw a single ridge stretched out, flat at the top and undulating. What he didn't see was that there were actually two ridges, the 600-foot Talana to the north and the 550-foot high Lennox Hill to the south. Directly below Talana Hill was a eucalyptus forest, or more like a wood. The trees were native to Australia and fast-growing. The mere fact that he hadn't scoped out the surrounding territory before this all happened was astounding. Simons decided to launch his attack on the Boers from the eucalyptus forest and a nearby farmhouse. He had Aldershot military tactics to inform him. First, soften up the Boers with artillery. Second, the infantry attack and charge. Then third, an encircling cavalry charge to stop the enemy's retreat. He'd used these tactics against Indian tribesmen with great effect. Simons also failed to listen to some of his junior officers, who'd had more experience in South Africa. They advised him to use an open-order marching formation as they were facing expert marksmen armed with magazine rifles. Instead, he wanted a typically European close-order march formation, which meant his men would be tightly bunched. The Boers could hardly believe their eyes in a short while. It would be like shooting fish in a barrel. The British cavalry under command of Colonel Moller took off early along with some mounted infantry to try and cut off the Boers by riding around the back of Talana Hill. Then the British artillery opened up as per Aldershot tactics. Simons rode off to lead the infantry assault on Talana Hill. His infantry had lined up in a dry riverbed to the east of Dundee. The commander had decided to throw most of his troops into this one attack. Three battalions of infantry, two batteries of artillery, all the cavalry and mounted infantry. Waiting to launch a flanking attack from Mpati Hill to the northwest was General Hubert. Simons was aware the hills could be used by the Boers, but wasn't sure they were there. In any case, he decided to give the Boers what he thought would be a swift uppercut, and they would run away. Not a single man amongst the British had ever experienced artillery rounds fired at them, nor the fire of multiple firing Moors. Few had seen action at all. They were all scared. A sudden hush fell on the 60th Rifles, the regiment which had been almost wiped out at Majuba during the First Boer War 12 years before the Second Boer War. The colonel in command was Bobby Gunning, who called the non-commissioned officers together and said quietly, Now men, for Majuba, God and country. 
The order was given and they stood up and marched forward. Like the soldiers in the First World War, some were hit immediately as they began the attack. Their bodies were scooped up by the Indian stretcher bearers. Yet most reached the eucalyptus wood, although out of breath. They were less than a mile from Talano Hill Ridge and the smell of eucalyptus was strong as the moors around cut through the branches above them and eucalyptus leaves fell about the waiting soldiers. The men gathered under the trees near Smut's farmhouse. On the opposite side from where they took cover was a stone wall, then a hedge, then open ground. Major Bird, who was in command of the company of Dubliners, crawled up a nearby ditch, but the Boers saw him and accurate fire pinned them down. The Fusiliers, under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Carlton, made it to the stone wall, but for the next hour the Boers' morser fire meant they couldn't move. The smell of eucalyptus oil mingled with blood and cordite. It was drizzling and at 9am the troops spotted General Simon's red pennant approach. He was angry having ordered an assault but here were his troops taking cover. Simon's ignored the warnings and rode through the eucalyptus wood, bullets whizzing through the branches around him. He was obviously in the moment, honourable British general, honour before cowardice, a noble tradition. Simons appeared to sit ramrod straight in the saddle, but after a few moments he returned and out of sight of his men allowed his assistant to help him down from his horse. He collapsed into a stretcher carried by Indian stretcher bearers in agony. Commander Simons had been mortally wounded in the stomach. Later, as he lay dying in the field hospital, Simons grabbed the medical commanding officer by the sleeve and said, Tell me, have they taken the hill? They hadn't yet. The British troops began to move up the slopes of Talana Hill and had no idea their commanding officer was lying in the medical tent bleeding to death, while many soldiers were also paying with their lives. By 9.30am they'd reached the main terrace below the crest of the hill, crawling and running. The Boers were firing non-stop, hundreds, thousands of rounds flying into the trees and into the men below. By 10am, many dozens of British had made it close to the crest, firing back at the Boers, and infantry below them were then motivated to support the success. While this battle was being fought, British artillery in the town were preparing to bombard the summit. The next disaster that was to befall the British infantry was by their own hand. 69 Battery could not see the British had reached the crest. Their artillery barrage began onto Talana Ridge from a distance of 3,000 yards, almost 3 kilometers away. Stunningly, they were firing at their own men. The infantry lying along Talana Hill could not believe it. Some of the wounded watched their own cannon open fire and moments later, their own friends and colleagues wounded, dying. It was this friendly fire that capped off the most violent attack. Still, the British troops, numbering around 2,000, managed to drag themselves up Talana Hill, only to watch the Boers running down the reverse slope, climbing aboard their horses, riding away. The British also realised for the first time there were actually two hills, not one. The British lost 51 dead and dying, 203 wounded on that hill. Still, there was time for retribution. The commander was on the flatland behind Talana, galloping away, the British gunners had made it to a saddleback hump between Talana and Lennox Hills and could see the Boers riding. Twelve guns pointed at the departing Boers, but not a shot was fired. Later, Colonel Pickwood, commanding the guns, claimed he had seen a white flag. But the real reason was the departing Boers in their capes and through the drizzle had looked a little like the British cavalry, the 18th Hussars. So no one fired and 3,000 Boer commandos made their getaway. The Times correspondent watched and filed his report. His name, Captain Francis Younghusband. And he wrote, 
The enemy had so far displayed undoubted courage. Though lacking in the organized discipline of trained European troops, they had stood up to our scattering artillery fire with great determination, and there on the Talana Ridge, standing clearly out on the skyline, they still appeared unbeaten and defiant. The British casualty rate was high for the comparative size of force. The Boers had 23 killed, 66 wounded, only 20 captured were missing. It was a tactical victory for the fatally wounded Colonel Simons, but an expensive one. Furthermore, the British force in Dundee was now trapped because the Boers had headed off towards their main prize, Ladysmith, and were in the British way should they try to withdraw. So our gaze now shifts to Elandslachter, 43 kilometres south on the main road to Ladysmith from Dundee and the railway line. Boer forward troops had arrived there on the 19th of October before this war in Talana Hill and cut off the important railway and telegraph communication between Dundee and Ladysmith. They had also captured a supply train with its guards. General Koch rode into Elandslachter the next day, the 20th, and set the German troops, who were led by Colonel Schiel, to patrol the flat felt plain to the west. He had also set up three 15mm Kriasut guns on the ridge overlooking the strategically important town. Major General John French rushed from Ladysmith with the Hussars to check on Ianoslachter after word had reached the town about the Battle of Talana Hill in Dundee the day before. French was a character. 47 years old, the son of an Irish sailor who joined the Navy at the age of 14 before moving to the Hussars or cavalry. He'd fought in the Sedan in 1844 and upon return to England was rumoured to have run off with his colonel's wife. French was not what you'd call battle-hardened despite his experience and his chief of staff was Douglas Haig. Haig is more famous as the commander-in-chief of the British Army during the First World War in 14 years' time. And another of the important characters will meet in this clash so far away from the Western Front. French's men rode alongside an armoured train towards Elanslachter from Ladysmith. It was clear the Boers held the town, so on the morning of the 21st of October, when he arrived at a small hill overlooking the town, he ordered shelling to begin. But the Boers' Creosote guns fired back almost immediately, which shot the thick-set Major General French. He ordered a tactical retreat and called for reinforcements from Ladysmith. The 1st Manchesters, 1st Devons, 2nd Gordon Highlanders took a train towards Elanslachter, watched for much of the way by Boer scouts. They entrained five kilometres from their goal. Two batteries of the Royal Field Artillery with their 12 gun teams had slogged their way to join the troops along rutted and muddy roads. Three more trains rolled up. Eventually, the British had 1,600 infantrymen, over 1,300 cavalry, more than 500 gunners and 18 cannon to the Boers' 1,000 men and three cannon. It should have been a rout, but it was one of the many battles where South Africa's notoriously violent thunderstorms would also play a role. French was an Aldershot man too, and so his method of attack was similar to Simon's at Talana Hill. So at 3.30pm, the artillery let rip at the Boers who were well hidden behind large boulders. The Devons then walked towards the Boers in wide open formation, while on their right flank the Manchesters did the same. A young Brigadier General, Ian Hamilton, had determined that open formation attacks were more effective, no more marching shoulder to shoulder and presenting an excellent target. Unfortunately for the Scots Highlanders who were marching on the Manchester's right flank, they did present an excellent target despite the open order march. Their dark kilts, black sporrans and shining claymores made an excellent target for the Boer sharpshooters. 
Then the British walked into something they'd learned to hate during this campaign and the First World War, barbed wire. The Boers had laid out a web of wire and the troops marched straight into the trap. The Highlanders' officer commanding was ensnared and then his arm was shattered by a Boer bullet. He is reported to have yelled, On men, I'm coming! But his men hit the ground instead and lay prone. Bodies lay scattered across the felt when at exactly an hour after the start of hostilities, 4.30, the powerful storm struck. Lightning flashed, thunder rolled, hail hammered the troops in a perfect combination of Hades' worst. Into this nightmare of violence, Brigadier General Ian Hamilton rode and ordered a charge. The Devons and Highlanders climbed to their feet and rushed the Boers, taking their artillery position. But General Cook counter-attacked, although most of his men were in full retreat towards Biggersburg. Cook himself was killed and what the British called an heroic last stand. The British cavalry was unleashed on the departing Boers, unlike Talana Hill, and many were killed. So after the battle, 50 British had died, 212 were wounded, the Boers suffered 45 dead, 110 wounded, and unusually 188 captured. It was a savage encounter. Four Victoria Crosses would be awarded on the British side. Although a neutral observer would have said Brigadier General Hamilton deserved one, the British Army disagreed. It was expected of an officer to be heroic. Once again, what looked like a great victory would be bittersweet. A week later, Elan's Lachter would fall to the Boers anyway. Watching this battle were Sir George White and Major General French. As they trotted back to Ladysmith at the head of their apparently successful army, they were not in fine fettle, for a messenger had just galloped up with the news that the Free State Army of 10,000 men was about to pounce on Ladysmith. That was not quite true. There were 6,000 Free Staters to White's army of 8,000, but the effect of that message was to send a shiver of fear through the commander. Even worse... Word got out and his men were thus far marched solidly with their wounded, panicked and ran. The victory march turned into a rout as it was virtually every man for himself trying to get back into the relative security of Ladysmith in what can only be called a dishonourable scramble. This method of conventional war yet unconventional defeat would infuriate the British leadership. The Boers had a sound grasp of tactics and had confounded the attempts at entrapment. The British knew they needed to draw the Boers into a battle to crush them. The Boers were seemingly always a step ahead. Next week in episode 5, we'll learn about the other regions affected by this war and the run-up to what the British would call Black November. So join me then, and please remember to follow the conversation on Twitter, at Deslatham. <laughs>